the North gets ignored generally um, in terms of public art. So, you know, its monumentalness is impressive in that respect. But also the use of the materials, you know, that are now rusting, says a lot about the post-industrial North, doesn't it, in mm -hmm. some ways. And the fact that people have left all these tributes to people, it obviously has some kind of quasi-religious significance because of the angel people, you know, exactly. looking for something somewhere, aren't they? They may not go to church, but they look for somewhere that... listening to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North, from the North. Welcome to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North, from the North. I'm Matt Carr. I'm Adrian Scott. Today we're talking about religion in the north, yes. and we've been on a road trip, the first ever road trip, isn't it? Yeah, very exciting. It's a kind of pilgrimage. It was a kind of pilgrimage. It was a proper pilgrimage, yes. Up the A1 yeah. and the M1 yeah. to Newcastle. To Newcastle. To see what? To see the Lindisfarne Gospels Absolutely. and the Angel of the North. Yep, yep. Before we get on to that, people always used to say, never discuss religion and politics if you want to make <laughs> friends, but here we are. We wouldn't have a podcast if we, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. So tell me, why? We're, what are we talking about here, Adrian, when we talk about religion in the North? Because this is a potentially a vast subject, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, huge. What, what's, the, what's the interest in this? Well, for me, as someone who grew up with religion in my background... Did you? Christianity. Right. Um, I, I, I was converted to Christianity when I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. Um, I suppose I had this question when we started doing the podcast about the North as to whether religion and spirituality has had an effect on the character of the North, mm -hmm. the people or the culture or the way we see the world. Um, that, that's the question that I sort of wanted right. to try and answer in this podcast. And what kind of, what kind of influence do you think it has had? Well... Yeah, that's what we want to try and find out, I mm -hmm. suppose. Mm -hmm. my, my gut instinct tells me that religion tends to shape the way people see themselves, mm -hmm. the past, the future, uh, what we're here for, all those big meta questions. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, we are beset by those questions in the North. We are. There's also the connection to place, isn't there? There's oh, connection course, to community yeah. as well, isn't there? Yes, how, how religion shapes people's view of the place that they live in but how how the place they live in shapes their religion right right exactly so well we decided given this such a vast subject we decided to simplify it yeah as much as we could we'll by going back to the source didn't we we did because uh, we are also after all spanning centuries here aren't we? <laughs> we are so why do we we went to newcastle to look at the lindisfarne gospels tell us about their significance agent well the, i mean they're an extraordinary it is an extraordinary document. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's thirteen hundred years old. It's uh, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written on calfskin on vellum, uh, 
by one particular monk, uh, Eadfrith, mm-hmm. in a cell, a little wooden hut, on the island of Lindisfarne. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And they are not just a religious document, they're a work of art. Right. Uh, it, it, there is There are beautiful, what they call, carpet pages with sort of mandalas on them. Uh, there are there's the text of the gospel in latin um but the colors the pigments are phenomenal and there are all kinds of influences on the way these were produced that's what i've heard and and um, i've never i've seen pictures of them on the internet and so on and in books but i've never actually seen them with my own eyes neither have i and the interesting thing is this year the gospel the lindisfarne gospels returned to the northeast yes. for the first time since two 2013, and that that time they were exhibited in Durham, right. where a hundred thousand people saw them. Wow. And coming to this as somebody who's not um, specifically religious, what yeah. interests me really about this subject and yeah. the Gospels is why, what um, does religion say about the communities of the north? Why why would so many people, presumably not all of them, were religious? That's why would they have been so interested? in these um, very old documents. Yeah. So, well, we went to Newcastle to find out, and we spoke to the museum's chief curator, Julie Milne. A lovely person. Let's see, lovely, yeah. Let's see what she had to say. Okay. We're here with Julie Milne in the Lindisfarne Gospels Who exhibition. Who is the chief curator of the Lang yeah. Gallery. Yes, that's right. And we're very grateful that you've given us your time. Oh, we it's are. a pleasure, thank yeah. you. So, why is it significant that they've come back here to Newcastle? Well, they were made in the Northeast, and I'm a Geordie, so it's a special thing for me. But I think everyone in the Northeast knows about the Lindisfarne Gospels. But they were made at such a significant period of history in 700, um, when there was a development of Christianity, and the Northeast was the hub for that. And they're just a work of astounding beauty, which takes your breath away when you think. Uh, you know, we have to, we're surrounded by technology and support and human comforts, but they would have been, you know, they're made on Lindisfarne, a tidal island, probably in um, a wooden building with mm-hmm. the thatch. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't many with stone buildings there with candlelight. Um, mm-hmm. Not many people at that time would have had candlelight, but we know the monks did. So it, it would have been produced, it could have been produced at night, but it, it would most likely have also been produced during the day when there was good daylight. So it, it's just astounding that that, you know, that artifact, 1,300 years old, and a work of great beauty and artistry is still surviving in absolutely pristine condition as well. This is um, what we try to do with the exhibition is, because the book is small, we've yeah. tried to open it out with right. other objects right. and, and examples from its pages, but also artifacts like stone crosses, Anglo-Saxon jewelry, to show the fantastic artistry and design. This is the dark age. Well, it's that the idea that it was the dark ages mm-hmm. that it was literally dark and everything mm-hmm. was dreary mm-hmm. and um, difficult. This is not dreary. But the colours just sing from the pages of they many do. of the manuscripts that we've got. But also we have stone crosses. Well, they're, they're, they would have been places where people would have gathered. Um, there would have been landmarks, but they would have gathered to hear the word of God, right. to have to listen to the preaching, the word of the gospels. Uh, but they would have been huge. I mean, we've got fragments here. They would have been about 20 foot high, wow. and they would have been highly coloured. And oh, you can they see they would have been oh, wow. I didn't technicolour. That. Um, again, going back oh, to what you said about that wasn't it wasn't the Dark Ages. No. no. 
and also um, there have been fragments found in some crosses of, um, of glass, so oh, the coloured really? glass, so, so they may have been reflective and glittering, Gosh. which is quite astonishing. And, and just the jewellery, I mean, it was the, you know, aristocratic, uh, yeah. the elite who wore them, but incredible artistry seeing in, in jewellery that um, was an armoury, and but also then with the emergence of Christianity, with Christian objects like crosses and bowls. I think the designs that you see throughout the objects in the exhibition show a kind of melting yeah. pot of sort yeah. of multicultural design, yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think is uh, in its more spectacular form encapsulated in the Gospels itself. Yeah. But you would have seen um, classical Roman elements of design. Right. I mean, the vine and scroll work is both Roman, but it's Celtic, it's sort of Mediterranean, um, but also Germanic tribes, the, the kind of yeah. animal forms that they used. Yeah. And all of these designs are seen in these objects. And as I said, with the Gospels, I think it's, it's done in such an innovative, clever yeah. way, but that mm -hmm. takes it to a new level as well of artistry. Is so it was kind of making a, a mark for kind yes. of Christianity, but yeah. referencing old pagan yeah, yeah. religions yeah. to draw that kind of community in. Yeah. And in some cases, newly to Christianity or back to Christianity yeah. because yeah, yeah. Britain the, was mm. Christian um, when the Romans, because the, the Romans converted Britain to Christianity, yeah. but then there was the influx of the Germanic tribes, yeah. which took it back to paganism again. Um, I think it, it shows um, a level of kind of sophistication in how the different traditions have been drawn on and how the, um, I guess the different traditions sort of represent spirituality in different forms. There's the pagan kind of traditions and the artistry in the different designs and the use of animals, so the pagan, yeah, yeah. but then how they've Animistic. been reimagined within a kind of Christian, Roman influenced antique, yeah. and, but also the Celtic elements of that as well, and the Irish influences. Yeah. So I this think. This has come from Iona and Aidan, who was Columba, uh, and then Aidan, and then you've got Cuthbert. There's a lineage, isn't there, from Ireland and from that that sailing forth to take the gospel and to vow never to go back and all of that sort of Irish, Celtic, Christian influence. Um, abs absolutely, and I think what the gospels is, how it encapsulates that is, is quite clever. I mean, there are some scholars have, have kind of wondered whether the Edith was deliberately looking at all those influences and trying to to bring them into balance and then together in a positive way. Maybe that shows something of the character of that, certainly of that individual, but what they were, what we were trying to do in Northumbria at that point in time and bringing the different strands of yeah. Christianity together and it was, in a it harmonious was a real, way. Um, hotbed of Christianity. It spread from here around Britain, didn't it? Yes, I mean, the, the Northumbria was central um, to the whole of Britain. Um, at that point in time through the spread of Christianity but also had a very strong political mm, power base to support Christianity as well and how the Northeast was central 
um, to the to the whole of Britain at that point in time. It's quite interesting when you think of you know the north south divide exactly. and everything centred in yeah. the south, but actually there was a lot at of that point going it was on up here. here and the level of sophistication as well in terms of learning yes. and book production, not only at Lindisfarne but Mouth Jarrow, which is close by. Um, it would have it was made in honour of St Cuthbert. Yeah. It would have been made for the monastic community. It would have been made for study, private study. It may have been taken out for special um, events or the kind of ritual of the church as part of that, but it wouldn't have been handled, as it were, um, passed around. And I guess that's testament to its pristine beauty. But the book was seen as a vehicle for spreading the word. So if people couldn't read themselves, it was a means of of um, having that written down and then being able to communicate it to a, to a wide audience. It's an extraordinary work of art, but as we've said earlier, an act of faith and devotion as well. And this is the last gospel, so it's the page of St. John, which the translation is, in the beginning there was the word, um, which sends shivers down your spine. Because it's that sort of um, iconic sort of statement from the Bible, and the word, the word of God, and that's the transmission, the literal kind of transmission of the, the, the teaching of God um, mm -hmm. through, through the word that is on the pages that is then made real and made tangible um, through its transmission into flesh. Um, there is a, um, a human figure, there is a face, mm -hmm. um, which is the only human figure face in the whole of the Lindisfarne Gospels. Um, someone said, is it a Edrith himself being part of the book? Mm -hmm. Who knows? Yeah. Various scholars have various Steve, ideas. You're but absolutely right about what you said about the mesmeric quality as well. Because, I mean, even if you don't actually understand what their religious significance is, the designs are so intricate and so powerful that you just and you find yourself kind of, your eye just wanders round and round through these endless interlocking interlace patterns. I mean, and then you've got the very delicate colour. The colours are amazing. Range, quite a wide colour palette, more than you would expect, given the image that people have of the Dark Ages. They always imagine <laughs> there weren't any colours, but they've clearly found them. And this is all organic, found on the island and created. Yes, they're all. It's it's all from the from the island. We believe certainly from the northeast. Um, I think uh, a number of years ago people thought there was um, lapis lazuli yeah. from Afghanistan, but it's not. It's actually made from wood. The blues oh, really? are made from, from wood. Um, the green from sort of copper verdigris and black from carbon, from soot. So, so this is and all they're to all hand. natural and from, yes, from plants, from lichen. It's all to hands. And, and, and the artistry of it is um, actually. Uh, subtleties of those gradations of colour and the juxtapositions of the different colours and and almost Edfrith or I, I guess he had some helpers or maybe not who knows I hope so <laughs> possibly would have been a chemist as well because yeah. had of experiment with yeah. colours and pigments to get that variety of, of shade and tone mm. from those core basic it, materials well, you'd have to practice, you'd think. You, you would, wouldn't you? You'd have to <laughs> practice and try things out in the different shades. But it's the green is just astonishing. It just looks so vibrant and fresh. So it's almost like a religious artefact as well. It's a, I know from, I trained for the priesthood, mm -hmm. so we would 
bring the gospel book out held up high with candles around it you know it becomes an object of worship itself um, like an icon something that you see the divine through it feels to me that kind of artifact I, yes I, I think it I mean it, it really really does and even if you're not um, a Christian I think it's such a, a, a beautiful object yeah. Yeah. and just we talked about the design earlier and how it draws you in it just creates you know time for reflection yeah. and, um, and what are we here for what, and what is life precisely, about precisely yes and when you think about their lives in that time you know on this island where the tide came in and out mm -hmm. twice um, you were cut off and separated you know it must have given that sense of what am I here for who am I what are we doing you know what 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 is how do we live in this world uh, how do we make sense of the brutality of the world all of those things all the animals and the, the world that they were far more connected mm -hmm. to than we are we um, have a lot of noise in our world don't yeah, we yeah. and I'm, I'm just hoping this exhibition it cuts out some of that noise and to give a sense of time for reflection and contemplation, especially with all the really challenging things that we've had to face. Yeah, Just thinking recently, within the past few years, the things that have happened with the pandemic and the Queen's passing. The fact passing, that we're standing here without masks is quite yeah, amazing. All, the, all, the, all those challenges we have, just mm. living day to day, cost of yeah, living. Eating your house. So I hope we're providing a bit of space for people to think about what's important to them. Yeah personally but yeah. collectively whatever their faith yeah. whatever their faith is yeah. and I think cultural artifacts objects of, of this nature enable us to do that and I think that's kind of part of our role as, yes. as museums and, 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 and galleries yeah, um, not not only you know cathedrals and churches I think we've got a, a place yeah. and, a, and a, a role in, in, in being able to do that for our audiences. So that was a great interview and a yeah. great um, exhibition, wasn't it? She, she was so thoughtful and so um, illuminating. Yeah, and from Newcastle, which really helped. Yeah, It's nice to have a curator that comes from the place. She was so proud of it. But it was part of her culture, Yeah, um, which is what we're, we're interested in. It is. And the, when you come into the exhibition, the first thing is this immersive part of it with all the Gospels being played out on the walls mm -hmm. and the tides of Lindisfarne. Mm -hmm. And it was very atmospheric. Was. And then we came into this exhibition of all these old Celtic crosses that, yep. that used to sit in high places, denoting some kind of sacred space. Uh, and I hadn't realised, because you don't see it now, they were painted. Mm -hmm. So they were really colourful. Um, and they had all that old knotwork. So this is the, the whole thing of the pagan, what they called pagan, Anglo-Saxon religion, being taken over by Christianity, yeah, and and there is that tension. Was this was this an invasion of another way of looking at the world, or was it building on a way of looking at the world that people already had? Uh, yeah, in uh, it's probably both, and in, in either way, that um, sort of um, advent of Christianity, the spread of Christianity yeah. through those symbols kind of marks these spaces out. It gives them a definitive Christian identity that everything else has been built on yes. since, hasn't it, in these yes. places, or at least for a long time until the kind of more recent relative decline of, of um, Christianity yeah. in the north and in the yeah. country. So, yeah, no, really interesting. And what struck me about him also was just the thought, those, you remember the exhibit of the tiny Bible? 
Oh, wow. There's a Bible there. It's yes. about the size of a hand. Yes. But you just imagine someone sitting there by candlelight in I the know. 8th century, um, barely able, not be able to see properly, writing these things out. The craftsmanship, the devotion, and the dedication that Absol went into it. Incredible. Breathtaking. Whether you're religious or not religious, no, you can't absolutely. fail to appreciate that. And that this, I mean, I looked at that because it, it was closed and it was leather bound. Yeah. And it had beautiful Celtic knotwork on the front of it. Yeah. But it looked like something you might pick up in a second-hand bookshop. Yeah. It didn't look that old. No, that's right. And that tiny script yeah. was just phenomenal uh, attention. There's The word that kept striking me all the way through it was devotion. Yeah. Very religious word. But there was a sort of devotion to the text, to the message, to the way it was being presented. It was artistic... It was spiritual. It it said a lot about the people of that time and about the North. Yeah. Because it was a real, it was a political, cultural centre, Northumbria. And interestingly, interestingly, a political, cultural centre very much open to the outside world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, you think of uh, dark ages, you think of these communities kind <laughs> yeah. of isolated from each other. But actually the isolation was far less than people thought. Yeah, that, and you can see that in the Mediterranean influence, those so the carpet pages of the Gospels yeah. that look like carpets. So you basically got this very, very remote place in Lindisfarne, and you have it um, basically open to a whole wide range of inter interests, Celtic, um, Germanic, exactly. Mediterranean, all flowing across the sea. Yeah, into this into little this island place, yeah. that's tidal, so yeah. twice a day it's completely cut off. It was um, founded by St Aidan, who was sent from Iona yeah. by Columba, to bring the message of Christianity down to the to the northeast, yeah, um, a monastery flowered, and uh, another monk that followed who was very famous, lots of churches devoted to him across mm -hmm. the north, Saint Cuthbert, who was had what well, this weird sort of um, two pulls in him: one to spread the message and one to be a hermit. Mm -hmm. So at one point he retires to a little island just off Lindisfarne and then they pull him back and then he retires to one in the Farne Islands way off, yep. always seeking this wildness, this sort of, um, that, that's described in this prayer um, that uh -huh. was meant to be a prayer of St Columba. Delightful, I think, it to be in the bosom of an isle on the peak of a rock that I might often see there the calm of the sea that I might see its heavy waves over the glittering ocean as they chant a melody to their father on their eternal course, that I might see its smooth strand of clear headlines, no gloomy thing, that I might hear the voice of the wondrous birds a joyful tune, that I might hear the sound of the shallow waves against the rocks, that I might hear the cry by the graveyard, the noise of the sea, that I might see its splendid flocks of birds over the full-watered ocean, that I might see its mighty whales, greatest of wonders. That's wonderful, that is. I mean, beautiful and also evocative of, of a kind of very remote, mysterious time that so little is known about. Well, exactly. And this idea of the Dark Ages. Yeah. People like Aidan and Cuthbert were anything but dark. They were enlightened. Yeah. You know, that, that they're the words of someone who's lived on the coast, who sees the sea and the ocean, who is influenced by the natural world and celtic christianity was 
deeply influenced by the natural world. And it still creates a space that people want to visit. I was quite, oh, yeah. um, I was quite touched by what she said, what Julie said about the, her desire to create a space of reflection yes. for people now in the 21st century, because it's so especially busy. in view of what people have been through the last couple of years. You know, I thought that was lovely. It was, it was. And you could, we could see ourselves, the, yeah. people, the queues of people yeah. flowing through it, you yeah. know, and that was only on a weekday as well. And, and you know, we came up to that, the book of the Lindisfarne Gospels. It's open on a particular page, the beginning of St. John's Gospel. Yeah. And, and it's beautifully illuminated. And this one guy, Erdfrith, did it in 10 years. And again, that sense of devotion. But as you were saying earlier, all these influences, Byzantine, Germanic, Irish, all the Celtic stuff, all coming. And, and she told us that all these beautiful colours that are still really quite vibrant were all found on the Isle of Lindisfarne. Amazing. Amazing. And she said also that um, Idrith was a chemist as well as an artist. Yeah. Didn't she? And yeah. so is it, you know. Renaissance it's, people. <laughs> well, and given that we were in Newcastle and Gateshead mm. and we're doing something about religion, yeah. we couldn't not visit another monument which is always there and has become a symbol of the north but a symbol of what exactly i'm talking about the angel of the north well exactly and it's like we went from where it started to where we find ourselves now yeah yeah um an, an amazing thing so let's see well we went there and let's see what some of the people we met there had to say about yeah, it yeah. shall we yeah that's great it's a lot prettier than i thought it would be i've only ever seen it on the tv but i wasn't quite sure of the meaning and then reading there it's uh it's got a lot more folks than i thought it did yeah, so it's quite... What do you uh, think it means? Well, I thought it meant something like, you know, she's there to look over everybody of the North. And then reading up there, I was a little bit askew, but I quite like the meaning it's for. To, what do they say? It's to remind you of the coal miners underneath that worked uh, for 200 years right. and bits like that. So, yeah, it's, it's nice. I like it. It's good. Uh, big. <laughs> Huge. Huge, yeah. Yeah. Do you think it, what, do you, do you think it do adds like anything it? special to the area? Do you like it? Yeah, I think I does. quite like it. Yeah, yeah. a yeah. torch attraction that we so we're visiting. So yeah, we're just on the tourist thing. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's just one of the things you want to see. I think in the country, you know, it's like going to London, isn't it? Yeah. See the House of Parliament. And what do you and, think uh, of it? It's very good, very good indeed. Yes. Does it surprise you at all? It it is surprise me how the size when you get close to it. You know, when you see it in the distance, it doesn't look very big, like but getting close to now it's uh, really impressive i must admit really. what do you think it it says about the north ah what could i say perhaps the uh the work that was done up here the structure steel and that industry that's all now disappeared virtually so uh like everywhere else sort of monument but it is but it's a monument to the past to people who worked in the industry. So I think it's, as I say, it's very impressive. It's just like a rusty thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it doesn't move you then? No. No. Uh, we're just heading north. Uh, the last time we headed north, we just drove past. So we just thought we'd stop off. And uh, what do you think of it? Well, monumental. Uh, it is what it is, isn't it? It's just to be seen from the motorway more than up close, maybe. Seeing it up close, what? How do you? How do you? Is it the first time you've seen it? No. So oh, it's great. You... Uh -huh. 
What's not to like? What do you think it stands for? Oh, um, yeah. I don't know, really. It's just for the north, isn't it? A bit of monumental art for the north. Mm -hmm. And why not? So, I don't know what you think about looking back on that, but I, it's funny, I find myself often thinking of that angel. Yeah. I mean, I'd seen pictures of it so many times before, but it's almost like having been there and seen it, it's actually become, I kind of, yeah. it's always flitting through my mind, that yeah, amazingly too. powerful image. And I, I'd driven past it, because I've been up to the northeast a lot, and seen it, but actually going right up to it. Yeah. It, it, it's true, it's a really powerful image. It's the way it seems to kind of um, harken back to the past and also point towards the future. Yes. And it half, it's half like a messenger announcing something, and it's Which also the wings are kind of protective, aren't they? Yeah, but you the, know what? The, two, the two aspects of an, the angelic uh, being, one was the announcement, so you've got the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and all that sort of stuff, and then you've got the guardian. Yeah, and it, it yeah. captures both those things, but not in that way that would exclude you if you weren't religious. No, I mean that's why there were so many people there who yeah. didn't seem to be religious no. and didn't express any particular religious sentiments. No, but, but you know between these two points, the eighth century Lindisfarne Gospels yeah. and the twenty first century, there's a vast history yes. of um, religiously motivated rebellions, martyrdom, persecution, God, yeah. Catholic recusants. And yeah, priest holes where the priests would hide in. There were a lot houses. of them lot in of, the north, yeah. weren't there? Yeah, I mean the north was a was a hotbed of Catholicism yeah. in the Reformation. But what strikes me, you know, thinking about the angel again, is you know, religion. If you think of religion, a religious faith, like a river that passes through nice image. societies at different levels of development and so on. Yeah, the religion of the north spring. came through the industrial north. Yeah, it did. And one of the most interesting periods for me is the um, arrival of Methodism in the north. Because, you know, it's only about 200 years or so before we went to Newcastle that John Wesley arrived oh, in the yes. northeast in Newcastle to preach. And um, this is what he said, okay. describing his first encounter, when he says, At seven in the morning I walked down to Sandgate, the poorest and most contemptible part of the town, mm. and standing in the street with John Taylor began to sing the 100th Psalm. Three or four people came out to see what was the matter, who soon increased to four or five hundred. Wow. I suppose there might be twelve to fifteen hundred before I'd done preaching. So that was the, probably the first ever Methodist sermon in the northeast of England. So the next day, Wesley preached again. After preaching, he says, the poor people were ready to tread me underfoot out of pure love and kindness. <laughs> it was some time before I could possibly get out of the press. So he was 39 years old, and he was already preaching regularly to crowds of about 1,500 or more. And, you know, reading that, one of the things that strikes me is the what people were prepared to go through Absolutely. to bring that their message to these communities. I mean, Wesley's brother, Charles, he also preached in Newcastle yes, that yeah. year, and he made various visits. He, in one point, his diary described the very harsh winter of uh, 44 to 45. He says, I walked to Sunderland from Newcastle and back again. The storm of hail and snow was so violent that I was often going to lay me down in the road, unable either to walk or stand. God. So this was common for these Methodist preachers as they went through the north. They, they were amazing. Wes, John Wesley, I think it is, he spoke of his conversion as feeling strangely warmed by the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and they had what, what I suppose you'd now call the common touch. 
um, the, you know, to be able to speak in the street and gather working people to listen to you. I, yeah. I mean, it's always yeah. struck me living in Sheffield. Wesley came to Sheffield as well and preached in Paradise Square. Um, it's always struck me how many Methodist churches there are around the north. Yeah. It, it, and all kinds, primitive Methodists, Wesleyan Methodists. This was a... A, a, a branch of Christianity that spread like wildfire in the north, and I wonder why. Well, it's interesting because you know Wesley himself often talks about the wildness of the people of the north. Oh, His first impression of them was that he talks about going through Huddersfield, and people were the wildest he'd ever seen. <laughs> so this idea of the north as a wild place, yeah, it yeah. may well be that some of those monks back in the eighth century similarly regarded the north as a wild place. I think they probably did. But in this case. They were going to, this was a period of religious renewal across the country, yes. late 18th century. And you had um, these Methodists going to industrialized communities, mm. early industrialized communities. Mm. So on one hand, you had, say, some factory owners like Arkwright and Arkwright's Mill in Concord. Oh, yeah. They created Sunday schools of course. for the very, very young children who were working in their mills. And maybe they took some, maybe they thought, you know, that was some kind of justification Sock. for exploiting them. <laughs> Because, you know, but, but on the other hand, these Sunday schools often provided the poor in the yeah. north with the first education, their first exposure to the Bible. I went to a Methodist Did Sunday you? school in Totley, which well, wasn't an industrial area. But I do remember the Bible stories and and the that great focus in Methodism on, on the stories of Scripture and and touching you emotionally right. with, with, the, with the word. Because um, there's... There's lots of singing and lots of preaching and not a lot of sacramentality or any of that. Yeah. But it, it's very northern, no nonsense, down to earth. That's that's what I remember from the, my Methodist Sunday school days. And this is what I think the Wesleys were bringing. That's very interesting, you know, because there was one of, um, one of um, Wesley's contemporaries with a Yorkshire stonemason and former wow. soldier called John Nelson. Oh, yeah. And John Nelson worked in a quarry, and he went all over the north preaching. He said to Wesley, no other preaching will do for Yorkshire but the old sort that comes like a thunderclap upon the conscience. Fine preaching does more harm than good here. <laughs> well, I wonder whether there was a distrust of of uh, institutions and, and of, of, of wealth. Um, I don't know. I, I certainly don't think the Church of England has ever thrived, I might get shot for saying this, in the North the way Methodism did. Um, and, I, and I think it's that, you know, not high for looting, not high preaching. It's down in the gutter, get, get in there with you into the industrial world. Well, totally. I mean, the, the, one of the things that Methodism did, it enabled poor people without any or much education to become yeah. lay preachers yeah so right there you're challenging the whole idea of the establishment the, church and priest craft and all totally. of those sorts yeah, of things it does so it's quite subversive it does non-conformist it, i don't think it meant to be i mean wesley always made a point he didn't want to challenge the church but in a way he ended up doing it by the mere fact of i think taking the gospels to these areas i think that's what's powerful uh, that that's one of the things that i, I feel more inclined about christianity is that when people really get into the nitty-gritty of trying to do something from the gospel, it tends to be subversive like that because it gets down to the, the poor people. You know, the, or, that's patronising, the, the ordinary people. I think 
Yeah, listen, we can come to that in that whole issue of how um, much Methodism challenged yeah. the establishment and how much it didn't. But first, let's have a, this. What, what you're saying about one of the reasons why Methodism triumphed in the North was because it had this visceral emotive power yes. that the church didn't have yeah. for many poor people. Yeah. There was one thing. One thing was the fact that people like Wesley actually went to these mining villages in the Northeast where no one bothered, no one bothered about them except the occasional pit owner. Yeah. And they didn't seem to be bothered about whether they had a church or not, or or whether the, this they subverted the parish structure as well, so that people. I mean, I remember even when I went to Sunday school, it was the Methodist circuit. And right. the preachers would move round the circuit. They they went to where the people were rather than where the boundaries of the old parish structure would be. Right. Well, you know, just get to grips with this idea of this kind of thunderclap upon the conscience <laughs> preaching that um, John Nelson talks about. Let's listen to this excerpt from John Nelson's own journal in which he describes this dream that he had. OK. One night, I dreamed that I was in Yorkshire in my working clothes going home. And as I went by poor champions, I heard a mighty cry as of a multitude of people in distress. All on a sudden they began to scream and tumble over one another. I asked what was the matter, and they told me. Satan was let loose among them. Then I thought I saw him in the shape of a red bull, running through the people as a beast runs through the standing corn, yet did not offer to go any of them, but made directly at me, as if he would run his horns into my heart. Then I cried out, Lord help me, and immediately caught him by the horns and twisted him on his back, setting my foot on his neck in the presence of a thousand people. Wow. Something else, eh? Yeah. Wow. That is a powerful piece of... Twisting him on his back, setting my foot on his neck in the presence of a thousand people. Wow. You imagine that drama being played out yeah. in uh, pit villages and mills and industrial towns across the north. No wonder his preaching was, was well received. It was well received well, by the poor by folk, but not by everybody. A lot... John Nelson himself, he was jailed in Bradford, he, had, he was beaten up, really? he had stones thrown at him, he was wow. regularly, stones, eggs, verbal abuse, it happened to all these Methodist preachers, most of them anyway, there was a lot of resistance, and I guess well, there was just... wonder why? Well, because they were seen as... Um, not part of not the, the establishment. True, no, they weren't part of the establishment, I mean, it wasn't necessarily posh people who were attacking them, no. far from it, but posh people would sometimes instigate... Right. Um, Right. attacks on them but at the same time john nelson was saved by some local aristocrat right because he was press ganged into the army to shut him up to stop him <laughs> preaching and she got him out i can't remember her name but it was Gosh. a it was a local aristocrat that got him out wow. so you can't just say methodism was you know a working class religion or not a working class religion you no can't put no, it as easy no. As that. and this is <laughs> what they call muscular christianity muscular very muscular yeah, this man's a stonemason so this is a man who's worked with his hands and the imagery he creates it it reminds me of I, I know the theology behind the devil and what he's probably trying to say but it feels like the the rise of industry is behind it this you, monster that eats people and that is you know red in tooth and claw the descriptions that we had you know even in the the orwell episode this is this is powerful preaching. I agree, and 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 you're right to point out that industrial context. I mean, there was another one, E. P. Thompson, the historian E. P. Oh, Thompson. Yeah. He talks about this collier from Hepton Bridge called Dan Taylor, who also became one of the Methodist lay preachers. Right. But there was no meeting house for them. 
right, in Hebden Bridge. So he went up onto the moors above Hebden Bridge by himself, brought down all the stones, dug them up, dug up the stone, brought it down, built a meeting house, and went on to deliver about 20,000 sermons, walking (laughs) 25,000 miles around the north. Preaching. This just reminds me of there's a lovely book called The Nonconformist by right. Martin Parr, the photographer. Uh-huh. He went around the very chapels that uh-huh. we were just describing recently and took photographs of them, and, and they met with a lot of the older people who still go to them. Uh, and, and the woman who writes uh, was with him says this For us, there was something about the nonconformist ethos that resonated with the West Yorkshire outlook. Hard-working, frugal, temperate, disciplined, self-reliant, fond of tea and cake. Very interesting. I think that whole that I think when you're talking about religion in the north, you can't ignore the whole industrialized context, no. you know, and the, the duality of religion. So on one level, religion would have been used in some instances, say, to discipline yeah. the new working classes, who were basically many of whom had been driven off the land and were coming yes. to work in these big towns with no protection, to living yes. in terrible conditions. Yeah. They needed explanations for what was happening. Mm. And from the point of view of the factory owners and the people who ran the place, they needed to be told that they should be doing what they were doing. Yeah. And yet, the same, so, you know, you have to... This is that. interesting, is, is religion is used at times as a method of subjugation. Yeah. And at other times, it's, it's you know, Marx's idea of the cry of the poor... Um, and I think, you know, Methodism may have played both functions, and that's what I'm interested in about the North. Yeah, definitely. What functions has it played? And the fact, you know, the fact that you had um, preachers who were working men. Yeah. Because, um, as far as we know, they're nearly all men. There was a mo- There were. There was a movement called the Southcottians. Jo- Joanna Southcott um, created this re- millennial movement, hmm. which was mostly women wow. who were members of it. It wasn't only in the North, but it right. was kind of often in the north. Right. And basically she said that she was going to give birth to the Messiah at the age of 62. Really? Um, and so people believed that the end of the world was coming to the point where in Manchester canals there was one guy who used to go to the canal every week and try and walk on the water <laughs> in preparation <laughs> in preparation for the coming of the end you, of the yeah. world. You know, so You can kind of see why when you live in that sort of almost apocalyptic landscape of the Industrial Revolution, why people felt, you know, again, those John Martin paintings were all apocalyptic. Because it looked like hell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and that's captured actually, but in a different way, by Charles Wesley okay. in a famous hymn, um, See How Great a Flame Aspires. Right. Let's have a listen to it. Yes. Great a flame aspires. It's interesting that hymn is steeped in kind of the Im- imagery of industrialization. Isn't it, it? Is, the flame isn't it? aspires, the spark of grace, the Jesus' na- love, the nation's fires. fires. Fires, of course, that were lit by colliers, yeah. some of whom Charles Wesley yeah. would have been preaching and to. And in factories. Sets the kingdoms on a blaze. 
yeah. um, kindled in some hearts, all this. It's all industrial imagery, isn't it? It is, it is. He was and, a great hymn writer. I mean, he was a poet, I think. I think, yeah, there's there's beautiful words in that that, that you can see why people were taken... Well, because he's speaking in a language, in images that people would have yeah, been exactly. able to relate to their exactly. daily lives, wouldn't he? And the, I think, you know... Going back to what we were talking about earlier, one of the interesting things about the the extraordinary spread of Methodism and the um, the descriptions that Wesley has of the instant emotional response that his sermons receive right. in all these pit villages and in Newcastle and in Bradford and Huddersfield and all these places, is um, what effect did that long term effect did that have? Because Charles Wesley was not a subversive. No. Polit- politically, he was high Tory. Yeah, he had no interest whatsoever in challenging um, the social conditions in which people lived basically methodism was offering people individual salvation well and and that's always a thing to reflect on when you're thinking about religion and christianity and theology is is what part of of human beings is it addressing conservatism conservative christianity often addresses the individual yeah that what we need to deal with is individual sinfulness individual naughtiness yeah and then if, if and then everyone will conform to the uh, to conserve the world that we live in, and and the more leftward leaning theology in Christianity looks at institutions and um, the powers and dominations mm-hmm. and how individuals are subjugated and how they need to win their freedom. So you know, there's lots of strands going on, uh, and if Wesley was a high Tory, he's stressing the individual issues, he is. whereas. I don't know whether it's well, true that, the thing that other is, parts of Methodism may be addressed. You're right what you say, but the thing is religion, like anything else, often has effects that the people yes. introducing it don't intend. That's true. I mean, like E.P. Thompson in the um, Making the English Working Class, he says that Methodism was a kind of reactionary force. Um, he says that because Methodism kind of concentrated so much on individual salvation, right. it actually didn't uh, create... Um, any space in which, say, people could look at the kind of social conditions and think they could be changed. But there's a whole other argument which says that Methodism had a decisive impact in the creation of the Independent Labour Party. Okay, Um, which is what I... That was my hunch. Well, I mean, for example, there's this great quote from Jack Lawson. Jack Lawson was a trade unionist. He later went on to become... He was from um, the North East. He was in the pit from about the age of 12... Right. He was self-educated and then through Sunday schools. He was a gambling addict, actually, until he was 18. Goodness me. And he says that Methodism saved him. Um, Very temperate religion. That's right. Well, he became a, temp- he became a lay preacher oh, for a while. But he later went on to... Be- he served in Atlee's government after really? the war. Yeah, and he became Lord Jack Lawson. I thought I'd heard that name. But in his um, autobiography, he writes about... He says, The Methodist revival of the 18th century came to mining communities in the time of economic, social and moral chaos. Right. The people were mazed and dazed by the greatest economic cataclysm in human history. Mm. The miners were almost its first and chief victims. Through these communities, the mighty revival suddenly swept, catching them in the swirl of its emotionalism, arousing new desires, enlarging the individual, searching out and stealing the will. The chapel was their first social centre. Here it was they drew together, found strength in their weakness and expressed to each other their hidden thoughts and needs. So he says, here men first found the language and art to express their antagonism to grim conditions and injustice. Wow. So that's great. Almost certainly not what Wesley intended. No, maybe not. But I, I do think that convening power 
of of religion, of Christianity, but not just Christianity. I mean, Islam, other other religions, that ability to bring people together. When you get people together, I remember, you know, going to the Methodist Sunday school. It, it, it's a great gathering, and then of course after, like like it was was said in the Martin Parr book, tea and cake. Everybody gets together. One of the things that Martin Parr observes is how well people looked after each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. And and I think once you've got people in the same place and you introduce ideas like blessed are the poor, theirs is the kingdom of God, yep. all of these incendiary phrases from the Gospels, then I think it starts to make people ask questions. Well, this whole idea, I think Blake saw that very well when he talked about building Jerusalem in exactly. the dark satanic mills. Exactly. You know, he when you, saw angels. When you look at some of the accounts in the, in, when the, in the late 19th century... You had a kind of new generation of priests going to many northern towns, like Father yeah. Amani in, in, in Sheffield, Sheffield, the People's yeah. Priest. He was known high as. Anglican. Yeah, people, and he was Oxford in a lot of trouble he was because he was kind trouble. of high church, mm. and he antagonized. There's, there's and some, he refused to stop doing it. There's some darkly hilarious commentary. I mean, it's, what's interesting though is how many, because Father Amani was introducing these Catholic ritual, rituals yes. in St Matthew's yes. in Sheffield church that I and yet people were to. talking about this all over Yorkshire and Derbyshire yeah, yeah. in the papers this Real was so important you know that, and there were like brawls weren't there I think because yeah. the um, there was one of the officials in the church didn't agree with what Father Amani was doing and the sort not of were, at all because he were, thought he was introducing papism right right so you know I don't think um, when people sent Father Manny to Sheffield, they expected that to happen or wanted it to happen. So then you have Philip Snowden, first Labour Chancellor under Ramsay MacDonald. Oh, yeah. Born in the West Riding, his father was a weaver and chartist. He later recalled an early meeting of the independent uh, Labour Party. Yeah. He says, it was an inspiration. It was like a revival gathering. (laughs) Socialism to these men and women was a new vision, a new hope of relief from the grinding toil and hard struggle with poverty, which has been their daily lot. And then in 1901, there was the Independent Labour Party Journal compared its political project to a continuation of Christ's work. Wow. The article said, true religion was self-sacrifice, that God's kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. If the grand political doctrine, love one another, were only carried out thoroughly, what a wonderful reform it would make. Mm, yeah. It is not utopian. Try it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here, but it must be in you before you are in it. <laughs> I mean, wow. take away the fact that you're discussing a secular political project. Yeah. It could have been one of those Methodist meetings, couldn't it, if you change the language a little bit? It, well, quite a lot. What, one of the images that's used in the gospel for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is yeast. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's something that ferments. The metaphor is about something that that you can't see but makes the bread rise mm-hmm. it ferments mm-hmm. and i think there's something about the way religion has been in the north that at times has fermented uh, when it when it gets into enough people it seems to ferment uh, all kinds of I, I would argue good things mm-hmm. you know if you go right back to lindisfarne you know this 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 idea of sacred places, of um, pilgrimage and journey, of bringing a message about what you just said about loving one another, about looking after each other. 
um, and and then right up to Methodism, it's it, there's this ability to ferment something. Of course, these aren't only Christian messages, are they? Of course and actually, not. one of the other interesting things about the North is how the whole physical and social landscape has been changed by immigration in a very short time. It because was quite right. Most of the history of religion in the North, <clears throat> centuries, you only talked about Christianity. Christianity. And not so anymore. really, no, not, not anymore. So in the last 50, 60 years, hmm. you've seen the physical landscape change. Yeah. You've seen old Methodist chapels turned yeah. into Sikh Gurdwaras. Yeah. And if or you bear mosques. It, or mosques even, yeah. I mean, you bear in mind that you now have a northern religious landscape that includes Hinduism, Islam, Sikhism, yeah. Buddhism, and other yeah. variants, yeah. you know. Old religions that have entered the old industrial communities of the north. It's true. At a time when those communities have been mostly shut down. Yeah. or have been disintegrating. And yet so many of those people who came to work from the Punjab mm. were peasants who yeah. left the land same to work kind in of factories people. and mills, just the same kind of people who once did in Wesley's time. And so, you know, the and those religions are still giving meaning and community to these former industrial workers, and this descendants is, of peasants, yes, who came to work f- in these factories and mills. This fermenting, this alchemy. Yeah. Uh, between, you know, hard-bitten, hard-worked, hard-pressed communities and messages that come from religion, come from spirituality, about, you know, looking after one another, about not, you know, looking after the stranger, not oppressing the poor. Some of those messages that are, are fairly universal to most religions, when they get into the north, I mean, this is, I suppose that's the question we've been asking, and I don't know whether we've answered it, and I'd be fascinated to hear what other people think. But, you know, has that given, has that alchemy created a particular worldview, uh, you know, that, that, that gives some character to the north? And we, I mean, I think our experience of the angel of the north was, was that, you know, it could have he could have had a sculpture of anything, but he chose an angel. Yeah. And and people are, are moved by that and comfortable with that. And and if you remember, there was that little sacred grove at the bottom of the hill, where people had brought pictures of people who died. There were it looked like something from the from, you know, an old holy well in Ireland. There's a sort of instinct that it was giving rise to, uh, giving voice to, and that the angels seem to I think, give yeah, voice to. I, I think you're right. And the angels also have a resonance that goes beyond Christianity. I mean, there's a great yeah, um, a great memoir by um, um, Bradford-born writer Zyba Malik, mm-hmm. who talks about her conflicted upbringing as a, in a very devout Muslim household, okay. where she was kind of exposed to British-English cultural influences mm-hmm, and the different yeah. pull, push-pull that that caused. But in her kind of more devout youth she talks about seeing angels in really? um in bradford and looking at literally looking at her window and seeing the angel gabriel and hordes of angels going down the street like or blake. imagining that she saw them like blake it's yeah. quite kind of blakeian description it's interesting though because you know people often stress the they often people are often keen to portray islam as a destructive influence yeah. you know but like every religion there are all different of possibilities. Course. I was I was quite touched to hear, for example, that um, it was the Muslim community in Bradford that saved the, Bradford's last synagogue from closure. Wow! In two thousand thirteen, they I helped. Didn't know that. They helped come up with the money 
to um, to renovate it, and it's still there. Gosh, so you know, there's all sorts of different stories, all kinds of different there? possibilities. But in this case, all of these different religions have moved through this in these industrialized communities, yeah. these communities connected to the birth of industrialization and the end of industrialization. Your lovely image of it being like a river. Sometimes it goes into underground springs, sometimes it comes up like a fountain. Which will keep flowing and will form, take new forms in the kind of future societies yeah, that are going to emerge exactly. across the north. But it does, it does seem to flow through northern conduits. Yep. There seems to be a particular way that it affects the north. Yep. Uh, and a way that northern people and the northern environment affects uh, the religious instinct, if you like. Definitely, definitely. And I think on that note, mm. we should leave it there. And All those angels of the North. The angels of the North. Next month, we'll be discussing acting the North. We'll be talking oh, yes. about actors and theatre. Yes. Including one actor with a very personal connection. Yeah, yeah. We won't give any spoilers. <laughs> we'll be talking about what it means to be a Northern actor and so much more. Yeah. We hope you can join us. Until then, yes. we leave you with the words of William Blake and perhaps the idea of Jerusalem is always present in England and the North, the idea Especially of the city on the hill, the, the city of justice, still waiting to be built where all faiths meet. Amen.